Hey there. Welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we've got a very special War Crimes review of Hal Ashby's understated comedy from 1979, Being There. Plus, we've got a trifecta of really rad recommendations for you. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. You notice anything weird about that uh, that intro we just did? That uh, you haven't seen being there because I called it a war crime. Oh, I thought you hadn't seen being there. I thought that's. I thought you were fessing up to to the war crime. No, no, being there is one of my favorite movies. Oh well, who hasn't seen being there? I haven't. Wait, what? who is that? It's me, School of Rock. School of Rock. School Why? of Rock. That, that's our buddy Phil Lucia. Hey, Phil. So, so Phil has. A, he's actually the very first guest in the new Bayou Bureau-based office, and uh, and uh, we we brought him in to basically we brought him in claiming that uh, being there is a war crime for him, which I guess technically it was. I don't. I don't know. Did you have much much uh, shame in not having seen being there, Phil? Um, after uh, after watching it and looking into it a little bit, yeah, I think I think I do because oh really, I really enjoyed it, and I, I know Hal Ashby's work from his stuff with the Rolling Stones, so. Um, not having seen kind of his big film that is the best known, uh, definitely felt to me like something that I needed corrected. So thanks for providing the push for that. Yeah, I'm a huge Ashby fan, so I feel that everyone who hasn't seen Being There is committing a war crime. That's my point of view on it, and I just can't wait till we get to the intro to talk about it. Uh, I'm especially excited that I could convince anybody else to watch it. Well, let's, guys, what do you say we just get into it and uh, let, let's talk about this uh, this little gym? I'm a very good... Good gardener. It's such a a pleasant way to forget one's troubles. Now, yeah, well, isn't that what any businessman is? A gardener. He works on flinty soil to make it productive with the labor of his own hands. He, he waters it with the sweat of his own brow, who makes a thing of value for his family and for the community. Yes, indeed, Chauncey. A productive businessman is a laborer in the vineyard. I know exactly what you mean, Ben. The garden that I left was such a place. I don't have that anymore. All I have left is the room upstairs. Oh, come on now. Wait a minute, Chauncey. You've got your health. For God's sake, man, you can't let those bastards get you down. you got to fight. I don't want to hear any more from you about that room upstairs. That's where I'm going. Too damn soon. All right, guys. So I didn't have the chance to actually. Yes. I didn't have the chance. Yes. I didn't have the opportunity to actually uh, write a, an introduction for this, which happens from time to time on the show. Uh, so let's let's just kind of let's kind of get into it. This is we brought this sort of as Phil's war crime. I'm glad Phil that you actually think it is worthy of being a war crime uh, because I. I don't even know how it, you know, it came up, but it was, I was thinking about this movie the other day and sent you a message and said, Hey, 
Phil, you should really watch being there sometime. I think you would like it. And I'd like to know your, your thoughts on it. And huzzah, you're, you're here. Here I am. I think less than a week. Uh, I'm pretty later. sure it's like three days. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I don't know how that happened. Of course, my first response was, I haven't seen it, but I've heard being there. Right. Which I knew was going to be your, your reaction, of course. I'm nothing if not predictable. If, um, but being there, for those who may not know, uh, Hal Ashby movie uh, came out in 1979. Uh, it's based on the novel by Jersey Kaczynski, who actually wrote the uh, screenplay as well. So, uh, I, I, I mean... Sort of. It had to go to arbitration and get his name on it because really uh, Robert C. Jones, uh, also an editor, uh, wrote that version of the screenplay that went to that was actually filmed. Oh, really? So I didn't know this. The, I didn't I didn't have the, the chance to do much, much research on this. Yeah, Kaczynski was really possessive of it and, and wouldn't let it, it kind of ruined his friendship with the producer. Uh, and it's really bizarre because he even said uh, afterwards that the film was better than the novel. Hmm. Interesting. So, but he still insisted that his name be the only one on the screenplay. Very weird. Okay. Well, yes. So very, it's very uh weird. it's it's a pretty simple story. I mean, it's it's about this guy. He uh, he's a gardener and he's a simpleton. Uh and all he knows is gardening. All he's ever known is gardening. Um he grew up in this uh living in this rich estate. Um, from the time he was a boy, and has never left the house. Has has never left the property. Never and, been allowed to leave the house. And and the the guy who uh, who owned the house has recently deceased, and uh, so Chance the gardener uh, goes out, strikes down on his own uh, with nothing but a very fine suit and uh, a TV remote, and uh, then. Hilarity ensues if you like really, you know, subtle humor that's sort of the same joke over and over again. But um, it's very subtle. Hilarity ensues. Very, very <laughs> subtle. Hilarity ensues. Um, and this. So Peter Sellers plays Chance, which this is, I think, his last role. It's his it's his penultimate. Yeah. Oh, is, is that OK? Because he died, I think, the next year. Um, and it's it's a really, really subdued performance for him. I mean, especially if you you know, know anything about sort of also how he off screen sort of uh, was very manipulative in, in the way that he, you know, was, you know, trying to be, especially in his comedic roles, very zany. Um, I, I was really impressed by that. And then also uh, star Shirley MacLaine as Eve Rand and uh, Melvin Douglas as Benjamin Rand. They are a husband and wife, uh, absolute millionaires, probably billionaires, um, and you know, they're, oh, billionaires. and, and, and they're friends with the president. Yeah. Uh, make, making just a house call to visit, uh, Mr. Rand. Um, excellent performance from all of them. Uh, Peter Sellers famously difficult to work with was he wanted to make this movie so bad that he was excellent on set. He and ha- he, he and Hal Ashby had made a pact early in the seventies that if this were ever to come to the screen and they had the opportunity, neither of them would do it without the other one. Hmm. Uh, according to Sellers, that's interesting. So this was this was sort of a dream role for him. So uh, let's let's start with Sellers. So what did Phil? What did you think of of, of Sellers? How how familiar are you with his sort of body of work? Uh, not extremely familiar. Um, I've seen the Pink Panther. Okay, um, and that was really my major reference point. I, I found out later that uh, he actually was able to get this movie made because of the career resurgence that the Pink Panther brought him. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? The return of the Pink Panther. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I'm sort of, I had, so I had seen this film before, I think. And I mean, being that it is so, so subtle, I'm not surprised, but I was just, I was smitten with him this time around with just how 
little, I mean, because it's a, it's one of those roles where you could easily try to get hammy with it. Um, and I think it would totally ruin the magic of, of what he's doing. Um, because it's so much is dependent on it sort of being, um, you know, selling, selling chance and selling chance, not as, not as a, uh, he's not Mr. Bean. Yeah. Well, he's, he's not a punchline. He's not, it's not, it's not that he is simple. That is the joke. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and it's not, a, and, and joke is almost the wrong word. It's, it's this, uh, it's that he's a blank slate and everyone else mm-hmm. projects what they want to yeah. see or hear on him. And, and that really becomes the joke. It's what kind of swirls around this guy who is trying to live the only life he's ever known in circumstances that he's not normally in. It's, I mean, yeah. it's, it's pretty, it's pretty great that way. The astounding thing about the performance to me is that if you had gotten a more serious actor, I don't think it would have worked. And if you had gotten a funnier actor, which I think Peter Sellers is hilarious, but an actor who wanted to play it funnier, the film wouldn't have worked. It needed this exact balanced, nuanced performance. And it needed the commitment from the director to back up that performance the way he did with a very objective, standoffish uh, presentation of the uh, of the scenes. It was just... it, it The camera was not uh, one one of the things I read from Caleb Deschanel is he said he shot everything at eye level, uh, sort of on, on the, the same level as chance and tried to present everything sort of from chance's point of view. Hmm. And that all backs up this performance. I think it sells it. And I don't think you really could have had anybody else, at least at that time, play this role. Yeah. I think, I also think this is a pretty interesting uh, piece of, I mean, because I don't know, this is the, the most recent Ashby film I've seen. I haven't seen any of his stuff from the eighties. And um, I mean, from what I understand, he kind of, kind of falls off uh, from there, but it's, you know, putting this up against something like Harold Mudd or putting up against um, coming home. It is like, those are movies that I absolutely love and adore, but they're a totally different tone and they're also a totally different like perspective. Um, mm-hmm. This, this feels like a movie that I don't think he could have made as a, as a younger man or as a less refined filmmaker because it's, it, it's that like, it, it is such a simple premise that can be, they can all implode or, or it can all fall apart so easily, but he really keeps all the plates spinning. And it's, that's, that's the thing that like, this time around it went from being like, I really loved that to like, this is, this is a really under, like, I, I know it's not just a, a gym that we've discovered, you know, people talk about it, but I feel like people aren't talking about this movie enough. It's, it's sort of timeless. It's sort of, it's, it's brilliant in that way. So Phil, this being your first time seeing it, I, I'm curious, did you buy it? Did you buy chance walking through this world, uh, that, that, um, uh Ashby created. Oh, it, it hooked me immediately. Yeah. I, I mean, watching the intro, I didn't, I didn't do any research at all. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the film going in, which I've heard is the way that you're supposed to watch, you know, a great piece of cinema. If, 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 if Jake is, has any influence on yeah. you. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, I've listened to the <laughs> podcast a couple of times. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't know what to expect. Had, had no expectations. I was a total blank slate, you could say. Um, but no, I, I watching the intro, um, from the very first shot, you know, where he wakes up and the orchestra starts playing and um, it's kind of dreamy. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, it almost reminded me of uh, The Last Waltz, of the way that Scorsese intercuts the footage with the orchestra and the dancing, the ballroom dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the fact that, um, that Chance is very quickly introduced as someone who 
has always had everything handed to him. You know, he, he sits down and is like, he, he wants his breakfast, but he doesn't go fix his breakfast. He waits for someone to bring him his breakfast. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's the type of character, um, that I understood. And then seeing him immediately basically kicked out of his very comfortable, familiar situation and going into the world of the seventies and, um, you know, the big city, uh, that's, I was in, I mean, I was, I immediately believed it. I had, uh, I had no qualms at all about, um, you know, I, I love the scenes where he's walking through the streets of Washington, DC. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was very funny and it was also, it was, it wasn't unbelievable in any way. It was, it was great. With the, with the great, uh, funk version yes. of, uh, thus spoke Zarathustra. Zarathustra. Yeah, I need, I need to get that? my hands on a copy of that. So good. I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't know what was going on, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I want to know if I carry a remote control around, will it get me out of sticky situations in seventies, uh, Washington DC? I mean, well? I, th- I think not only will it get you out of sticky situations, it'll, it'll get you into grand ones where you're like, you know, rubbing, <laughs> rubbing elbows with billionaires. Uh, so spe- speaking of the remote and the TV, uh, one interesting thing about it is this is one of the first times that TVs were shot on film or at least it was difficult to do at the time um typically they you know black it out or whatever uh and and put it in after green screen something like that uh so all of the um all of the footage had to be 24 frames per second yeah. on the TV and then also apparently um the cinematographer had two different color temperatures of them because the TV light could throw off the lighting and make it all look funky yeah i i hadn't even thought about that but that makes sense i mean you know it, it something like uh i know alien had had some similar problems they were and they were on you know shooting over in london so they had to do 25 uh frames per mm-hmm. second there but that's yeah that's a then the tvs are so pivotal to so much of of this and, and that's another thing i think with ashby being a guy who began as an editor there are so many things mm-hmm. in the approach to this that wouldn't have worked if he didn't have that vision up front. Like there's so many, mm-hmm. uh, like the, the background, uh, both audio and visuals from the TV are so important to sort of shaping, um, not only how we're experiencing what's going on, but sort of getting into Chauncey's head, Chance's head of how he's experiencing it. Like, I think that's, you know, that, that, that funk version of, I can't, I'm not even going to, Jake, how do you say it? Also, thus spoke Zarathustra. There we go. Something that, like um, is, it, it feels like the, it's the perfect soundtrack to him stepping outside for the first time because he is having a sensory overload. And then there's like all of these little things like when, well, and the, the, the thing with basketball Jones playing right before he gets he, out into the streets. Yeah. Like yeah. that's how he's seeing these surroundings. Like yes. he's like, well, this is unfamiliar. What, what, what do I compare this to? Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's the TV. Yeah. Everything is a reference to, to TV. That's, I mean, that's, and, and uh, like the, I love the, the subtle comedy of when Eve is coming on to him the first time and you've got mm-hmm. like the Thomas crown affair playing in the background and he like <laughs> tries to use that as a way to connect. <laughs> he, um, he bites his moves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, which actually that's, that's a little, that's gotta be a little subtle, subtle, uh, nod because Ashby actually edited Thomas crown affair. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it, it's great. And then, and then later whenever she's writhing on the floor and he's watching, aerobics there's just something like it's it's this weird that's the only way that he can 
even understand what it is that she's doing. <laughs> it's, it's so surreal. It's, yeah, <laughs> but but it's like that's the type of thing that it really hangs on those moments working, and I think all of those TV moments work beautifully here. It, it's a very postmodern thing because a the TV is all of the time, and you have to know you know what's a kids show and all this sort of stuff. It still works now. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. um, but. Also, back to the the soundtrack, when he steps out from the house for the first time and it plays that song from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Thank you. That's something all of the audience would have been familiar with. Right. So he is going to space and he's leaving his world. Yeah, that's and, true. Uh, gr- great choice. Just a, just an excellent choice. So this this movie, is, as I was saying earlier, like it's a movie that maybe has a little less uh, direct. I mean, because like something like Coming Home. Um, it's, you know, definitely an anti-Vietnam and sort of a still an Ashby hippie counterculture sort of thing. Uh, the the perspective that this movie has, it's a little bit lighter and a little less, you know, it's not it's not this commentary on uh, the world in a time and a place. It, it, it feels like something. Well, OK, let's compare it to something like uh, Network, which came out around the same time. And it's, you know, making big comments about what television is becoming. Um, this could easily be that sort of thing with using televisions as much as it does. But I think it endures in a way that something like Network doesn't uh, because he's using it as broader, almost allegory. Or, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not about the here and now, but it's about the bigger, uh, very, it, you know, it's about human connection and it's about all of these things. And that's that's just universal uh, to, to where like it, it, I don't know, to me still feels like it plays very fresh and clean. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think it's timely um, even now. I and mean, if you think about the late 70s when it came out, um, sort of the economic conversation that he gets into. Um, that was very of the time and place. I mean, there was a recession starting or continuing and, um, it was, so the, the economic anxiety was very much there. And so he was in a way addressing that. Um, and I think there is absolutely a lot of anxiety in our time, maybe not economic as much, um, or maybe it is, but, um, for me watching it, it was, um, it it seemed like it was commenting, um, just as much on, um, what, what TV is doing to the expectations of people at large. And so that's, that's how you see, you know, so many things get read into chances, very simple words and mannerisms. Hmm. People assume there's so much going on that he's not intending, um, but that, uh, you know, they've kind of been trained to, you know, read things in that, that aren't maybe there. Um, And so in a way it's sort of, uh, commenting on what the media environment was doing in the late seventies, which is yeah very different than today's media environment, but sure. it, it's, it is still, you know, present. And, uh, I think maybe in a way this, this was ahead of its time for, for looking at that and, um, maybe pointing out, you know, just because somebody says something that you can interpret to be profound, uh, it's, it's more in the perspective you bring instead of what is actually being said or intended. Yeah. See, I think you're both right, but I, I think the difference between this and network, they both have a purpose. They're both making a statement. Yeah. Ashby yeah, not- always had a statement to make. Um, this one, as opposed to network and network, the screenwriter puts the words in the character's mouth. This is a fable that you watch and your brain connects the dots. <laughs> it is not in the film in the same you're, way. You, yeah. 
It, no, it is. It's the exact same thing with Chansey Gardner. You project onto it uh, based on what you want to see. But but here it it's it's that it's even more powerful because you come to those conclusions yourself, and because it is not so specific, it will be more timeless than a movie like Network, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's that's sort of what I was what I was getting at is like it feels it feels so fresh, whereas like parts of Network feel a little dated or a little like we've gone so far past it, past what mm-hmm. Network is getting at that it, it feels almost quaint. Whereas like yeah. this, and I, I think it is, it's probably that blank slate that, that makes it that way where you can kind of, you can fill in as much or as little as you need to, to make it sort of fit and relatable to current, current experience. Yeah. But being, being there is just about the, the human truth that sometimes it's who you know and how you look and how you dress, Yeah, which is a, a probably a timeless thing uh, there, you can probably go back and see stories of someone looking the right way and getting mistaken it's the it's the basis of you know sitcom plots all the time but it's just this thing in our our society where you see someone who looks the right way wearing the right thing talking the right way yeah. you you assume that they have to they have to know something and it's still a white man's world <laughs> that's well that's that's the like i think the closest he gets to getting you know overtly political is he has the the comments on race which there aren't many but they are strong um they're are, unambiguous too. Yeah, yeah yeah that's very <laughs> i mean it's like he he hasn't been outside of his home for you know eight a hundred yards and you're already getting a message written on a wall behind him uh <laughs> saying like look at look at the the disparity you know he's walked out of his front door and suddenly there's disparity all around look that might have that might have felt preachy if it wasn't the funniest part of the movie (laughs) if i if i didn't laugh through the entire thing and it was amazingly written if it wasn't for that i might have felt preachy well but he he lays he lays off it as well like he he gives it to you and then he allows it to go another you know other places and then Mm -hmm. gives you a little bit more he also like there's there's a little bit of and it's it's not you know super overt but there's commentary also on sort of gender in the same way uh when that attorney is talking with his i don't know the 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 attorney like the attorney that uh shows up at the the mansion in the beginning to oh uh, uh thomas claim. or whatever yeah when when he's later at the bar with the the woman who was with him thomas franklin and he's basically saying like oh now my political aspirations are ruined and like the look on her face is like i couldn't even be a politician so like poor you like uh, between that and then you've also got, I think at the same time, there's this cross-cutting with the news editor who's hounding some woman that works in the newsroom about how can you not find anything? I don't care. You got to like, it's, it's this like, you know, he's not, he's not saying a whole lot, but he's very uh, sharp and specific in, in, you know, kind of showing the divide and gap there. Uh, and that's, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty ahead of its time, I think, as far as like just openly you know putting that into a into a you know big budget hollywood film yeah uh especially with the ending which we're gonna have to roll spoilers on Spoiler alert! Close your ears if you don't want to hear a spoiler alert right now. 
All right, Jake, we are in spoilers, but I got to ask, like, other than the very end of this film, what, what spoilers are there? Why did, why did you want to run this? Because to me, the last two, three minutes, whatever the funeral scene and all yeah. is, is pure 100% movie magic. The first time, I didn't see it coming and it blindsided yeah. me. The, the second time, my heart was beating out of my chest waiting for it and waiting for that to happen again. Because it's just one of those things that you can't recreate but it 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 just it hits you on the like it just hits you upside your head and you that's all you can think about if you're like me for the next week is trying to figure out who was chance and what happened at the end i agree 100% i did not see it coming either i mean it uh it definitely took me by surprise but as soon as it started happening i recognized it as being an iconic scene in film um but actually getting to experience it as a surprise the first time was very, very cool, very memorable, um, really just movie magic. Yeah. Jake, how do you how do you feel about the poster of being there? I could see you not liking it because of this. No, it's fine. It's fine because you don't know. Okay. It, it's it, it just seems like an artist interpretation of somebody being above it. If you don't know, it's uh, right. it's Peter Sellers as Chance walking kind of above the, the Biltmore or the Rand estate, whatever yeah, you want to yeah. call it in this. Um, and so he's kind of floating there. But it's fine because you could watch the movie and go, oh, this is it's such a grounded movie that you can be 95 percent into it, 95 percent of the way into it and not think, oh, he's going to fly away Mary Poppins style or something like that. But when you actually see it happen at the end, it it's the most perfect choice, in my opinion, because it upends everything you knew and almost puts you in the role of everyone else who's been watching Chance yeah. be pulled up from nothing. Well, and apparently that was a total Ashby decision as well. Like they were, I think they were mm-hmm. like watching dailies or something. And he got the idea. He was watching a, it was a, a scene between Chauncey and Ben walking down like a hallway or something in, in the Biltmore, um, in the Rand estate, I should say. And they've got these reflections kind of on the, on the uh, ground. And he, he was commenting on, you know, it looks like he's walking on water. And then he said, what if, what if we do this? What if we have him walking on water? And it's, you know, it's one of those things that could be, I think in another movie and maybe from another director, it could feel totally pretentious and totally just like, I mean, if, if like Alejandro Gonzalez in Uritu, uh, was to do this at the end, I would probably be angry. I would, mm-hmm. I would not, you know, I, I wouldn't give him that, like, I, I would be mad that he had done it. Um, but it, it works here. If, and it, if you don't set the hook uh, a half hour in, this doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to truly believe the character, believe in this world for the, the I don't know, I don't want, want to call it absurd, maybe surrealistic, maybe there's a bunch of interpretations, and that's what I want to hear from you guys. What do you think happened in this movie? Um, I don't know. Like I, I like the ambiguity of it. I like the openness of it. Um, is mm-hmm. it, I mean, is it subjective or is it objective? Is it, uh, is it chance? I mean, because he's just off alone. So is this, we've spent so much time sort of in his head from his perspective. Is this something that's really happening or is this just sort of, uh, him expanding his fantasy? I mean, because there's, when he first, uh, when he first walks outside, um, maybe it's when he's talking to Shirley McLean, actually, he's mentioning that it's like, it's like walking, watching television, but it just goes on forever. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so it's almost like he's part of me wants to believe that he almost wrote his 
own sort of weird, you know, now, now he's creating his own movie or his own television thing. And this is the first step into that. Um, because it's also like when he, when he puts the, uh, and it's super simple, but it's so effective when he puts the umbrella down to show that it goes all the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it almost feels like a magic act. You know, it's, it's that sort of, well, I didn't interpret it that way. I, t- I interpreted that as him not knowing whether it would or not. I mean, he was really exploring it for himself. Like he didn't expect to be out there on the water. So he yeah. was like, is this, is this really water? Oh, it is. Look at my umbrella. Yeah. No, that, and, and that, that makes, that makes sense. And that's, but that's what the openness is of it as well. You know, it's, if, if it's just him, then your read is probably right. If he's doing it as some other sort of like, there's someone watching him or there's some like, then maybe it's his, uh, showing. And then, I mean, that, that could open up a whole nother world of like fanfic of being there where, <laughs> where chance the gardener is actually this mastermind who's controlled the, you know, the economic outcome of the United States for the next decade or whatever. Uh, but no, Phil, what, I mean, what's your, what's your take? Yeah. The first time I saw it, I, I interpreted it as a, as a straightforward, um, depiction of him in, in like a Christ position. I mean, he was, he was being portrayed as this saintly person. Um, and then the second time I watched it, I actually got a different interpretation. So I think that speaks to the openness that you were alluding to, but, um, I, I was looking at it as, um, you know, this whole movie, we have seen him going through these situations and people projecting onto him what they expect or what they want him to be saying. So I, when I watched it the second time, it gets to the end, and like you said, it's it's pretty much a straight portrayal of him throughout. I I viewed the ending as being the camera finally portraying what the director was projecting onto him hmm. is the, him being this sainted, uh, perfect figure in this you know exalted Christ like position doing miracles now, um, and and the the camera sort of gets in on the joke. It's like. All through the movie, the camera has just shown what other people think, and now this is what this is what I think. And and that's what I like is that as soon as you start thinking, "Wow, is is he this ordained, a uh, 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 Christ-like figure? He's like you said, performing miracles." As soon as you start thinking that, you're doing the same thing everybody's done the whole time. Yeah, you see him do things, and you're like, "Well, this must be this this interpretation that I want of it." And no matter what interpretation you pick to some extent you are projecting it on there which i think invites the question uh is this speaking to what we think of all people no matter if they have a brain or if they have mush between their ears as it, it's uh, uh as they describe chance and no matter what what size their thing is yeah <laughs> no but but are, are we project are we all projecting this on the all people what to what extent does anyone's personality is not just defined by the things that you've seen in life. His is defined by gardening and television and, and everyone projects more onto that. Yeah. And well, and television is his basically his, his window to the world. And I thought that was really interesting. Cause when I, when I think of a character who experiences life through the lens of pop culture, I think of Abed from community. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, when I read <laughs> just the very brief synopsis of the movie before I watched it, it talked about how he experiences life and all he does is watch television. And I was like, Oh, so he's going to be like a seventies Abed. Um, Whatever. and then it gets to the movie and it, yeah, it's, it, I, st- I still think he's a seventies Abed. The seventies were a weird time. What is the seventies version of kick buncher? 
I've, I haven't seen enough 70s cinema to be able to it's answer that. It's probably still just kick puncher, yeah, I, <laughs> just with a lot of zooms. It's kick, kick puncher with a fro. But what I thought was interesting about that was I didn't really get that impression from the film. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't being portrayed as someone who has obtained a perspective on life through television that he then you know goes through and puts on other situations is like, oh, this is just like that, or oh, this is... Right. It's more like he is still an open book. As he experiences new things, like, I mean, like I th- you think about the bedroom scene and, um, you know, he's he's doing the things he's watching people do on the TV while things are happening in real life that are, you know, one would think would be a little bit more immediately interesting. Right. Uh, it's, it's almost like it's in one ear and out the other with him. But is that what we're I think one of the questions it poses, if you want to look deeper into it, is isn't that what we're all doing? We just see people behave in certain situations and that what that is what informs us on how to behave in certain situations. Rene Rene Girard would argue yes. Go on. <laughs> uh, Rene Girard is my favorite philosopher. He he teaches that uh you know in all great works of fiction, he talks about Shakespeare, he talks about um French literature. He was a literature professor at Stanford and he talks about how in this uh in these great works of fiction, the conflict is so often driven by this this rivalry that's created by people sharing and imitating one another's desires. Well, I think that plays directly into this. He, uh, Chance has purely seen things from uh, television or what he's seen other people do, and and that's what he does to them, and and that is what allows him to interact in a society. Gerard really is important to my worldview, and um, I, it's very difficult to watch works of fiction without thinking about his insights into human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about how children learn how to play by imitating others. And really the act of play is imitation. Right. Um, but then he also talks about how rivalry comes up when you get two kids in a room with one toy or, you know, two kids in a room with a hundred toys, what are they going to do? They're both going to gravitate towards one toy and then they're going to fight over it because yeah, yeah. they have imitated one another in wanting that particular one. I think just the fact that you can connect this to different philosophies speaks to the openness and also the thoughtfulness with which this film was constructed. So in reading about it, I, I read um, someone an article online that had three main interpretations of it, and I can lay them out real quick, and we can kind of uh, cover anything about them if we want. Um, the first one was that he's walking on water, but it's not a Christ-like thing. He is just so innocent that he does not know that he could not walk on water. That I, I actually I like that interpretation just from a, like— because because he he just hasn't experienced that before. It's this is the first time he's ever walked out into a. Um, well, and it, and it shows how he's able to do all the things that he's done in in society to raise to be you know possibly president. He just doesn't know he's not supposed to be able to do yeah. that. Yeah, interesting. That has opened a lot of so, doors for him <laughs> because he's a white man. With well, that too, <laughs> and it, it's surely a white man's world in America. So two, the second interpretation is that he. It's not walking on water, but there's the appearance that he's walking on water. There's a dock that we can't see. No, I and don't he's like this on one. it. This well, one's dumb. Well, but what it is is that he's standing on the dock, but from our point of view, it looks like he's walking on water. So it's a metaphor for how everyone else has seen him. Correct. That, okay, gotcha. A perspective is reality type of. Yeah. I think I actually do like that. Yeah, and, and I do too. Ebert did not. He claims, Roger Ebert claims, what was on screen is what is on screen. We're not shown a doc, so there is not a doc. If the filmmaker wanted to show us a doc, he would have showed us a doc. And he says that lots of his students would propose doc. There's a hidden doc as a theory, and uh, he would shoot it down instantly because he said it is not on screen. Well, that's that's more speaks to 
Ebert's perspective on film in general, though. That's and, and that mm-hmm. that's sort of gets back to the heart of what we've been discussing here is Ebert is always going to see it that way because that is how he approaches film in general. That's that is a broad rule for his his mm-hmm. experience of film. I think what's funny about that is that uh, in a very literal sense. That is exactly what happened. It yeah. is on screen because that's the way they shoot those sorts of things. They put something under the water. It's probably a piece of glass or something. Yeah. And so, I mean, <laughs> it was a, it was a it was a small pier painted black. Yeah. It's it's put uh, just under the water. So so you know for for that to not be something that's shown on screen, so we're not allowed to allow it. Basically, it's it's a it's a discounted from being an interpretation. Well, no, that's yeah, a, that's actually I, I, what we're seeing on screen. Yeah. I like that interpretation because we're challenged to think of how he's doing these things and not judge it at face value, which is what all the characters should be doing. Yeah. They're judging it at face value and not thinking of how he might be doing this. Yes. Mm. So it's almost like running off and saying, oh, he's a Christ-like figure. Look, he walks on water at the end is exactly what Ben did and what the uh-huh. producer of the TV show did, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Everyone, everyone but that doctor. You're a gardener, aren't you? Yep. All right. I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> MVP of the movie right there. <laughs> and, and Jake, did you, did you recognize that, uh, that doctor? No, I didn't. Who is he? He's in, uh, he's in the thing. Is he? He's, he's the one that, uh, that gift from the thing that I made of, of the dude just oh, shaking yeah, his yeah, head. Yeah. No, no, I that's remember him. that. I think yeah. you mean Jeff. Yeah. No, I mean GIF. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't. I wasn't told that we weren't allowed to talk about religion on this. <laughs> Speaking of which, the third interpretation is that he does walk on water and he is a Christ-like figure. And the whole thing is is either a statement on, on Christ or um, just showing how an innocent man who speaks in parables is um, can have a, a major effect on the world. And, and you can argue the structure of the film and, and his character is uh, entering the world completely innocent and all of those things. That's the third interpretation. I think the one that that's the one that really goes into the, the religious rabbit hole. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like entertaining that interpretation for sure. I think it's, you definitely have to approach it from the more like postmodern where the author doesn't, uh, is, is more discounted, uh, from, you know, authorial intent because I think Ashby even said, you know, like that, they only realized afterwards that there were all of these sort of Christ-like mm-hmm. motifs throughout, you know, it, and, and maybe there's a conversation also to be had about, you know, how much just culturally as, you know, in, in American culture that, that stuff sort of just seeps through. And so it ends up in places where you wouldn't expect it because it's not, you know, it's, it's indirect, but it's so much a part of, presentation in American yeah, the, culture. The, the Christ stories influence yeah. art everywhere. Um, Jer- Jerzy Kaczynski is from Poland, fled Poland as a child, was mute for eight years. He has an interesting story, but just this, the, that type of character is going to permeate everywhere. Right. Uh, you know, and, and walking on water is universally associated with one man ever all time. So you, you can't make that reference without inviting that sort of, uh, comparison i mean i I think we're all in agreement though it's it's sort of the perfect way to end this movie and i'm glad you brought that up it is 
you know what's not the perfect this is the thing that keeps this from being a perfect movie <laughs> the, 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 the credits of this the movie the credits it's the cre- why are there outtakes over this movie's credits they couldn't keep the zaniness out forever it, it was going to come in somewhere maybe maybe that was peter sellers like contractual obligation it was like okay i will play it straight but throughout the entire run I'm, of the credits I'm, i have a type to keep up here I've always heard that that is what cost him the best actor nomination. It wasn't a common thing at the time, and they showed him breaking character a lot. He believed that. He objected very loudly and long to anyone who would listen. Yeah, that he did not want those outtakes at the end. Oh, really? Yeah, he personally hated that scene, and he. I think he was angry with Hal Ashby until his death beat over that decision. That I mean, it, they don't fit though. Like, I don't know why they're there. It doesn't make any sense at all. Unless, like, unless they're like, we just made this like very austere, not comedy comedy. People and people are going to come to see Peter Sellers. Uh, we have to give them better a, leave them laughing a little bit of what they want. Otherwise, <laughs> they're going to be pissed. It was guerrilla advertising. They just wanted people coming out of the theater to have smiles on their faces yeah. instead of to be pondering, you know, the Christ-like significance of <laughs> what they had just witnessed. <laughs> I just got back from the focus group, and they said they want to leave them laughing. <laughs> oh, I guess we could do something. Perfect. Put the outtakes at the end, and we're good. Got that part about Raphael? Put it in there. Perfect. The folks at home will love it. Uh, it a terrible decision. It, it would be like going to see Inception, and the top wobbles or doesn't wobble, and it cuts to black, and then we just see Leonardo DiCaprio on his yacht with some women. Like we, we, it's not that we don't need it. Today. It's, I mean, it, it's not even that. It's I'm pretty it's sure that's like, what the Wolf of Wall Street was. It breaks <laughs> and it just goes straight but to it, Wolf. But it, it, <laughs> it was the, that was the, that was the credits for Inception that ruined Inception uh, it, in retrospect. Yeah, it, it, it's it's the top cut to black quaalude scene. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's that's at least a better like because it, the thing that doesn't work about it is it totally undercuts. Like you've you've just totally bought into chance and and Mm -hmm. like that him walking on the water is the like the ultimate of Mm -hmm. just like if if you buy that you you buy everything and then it's like all right roll out the tunes and and here's (laughs) here's a whole bunch of peter sellers laughing at it needed the benny hill theme going on in the background (laughs) it it, it should be in a quiet dark theater and make you contemplate on the movie yeah i I just i don't the the movie itself is almost like i bet i bet i can take two hours and 20 minutes and by the end you'll buy a guy walking on water yeah in a completely sane world you will buy a guy walking on water also, I'll show you some outtakes about Raphael. <laughs> I think in the in the home video release, I read somewhere that the the home video release was changed to what Peter Sellers wanted, which was um, I think at the at the end there's a montage of TV um, screens and uh, and then it goes to the outtakes. But what it actually does in the home video release, at least for a while, was it would just go to static, and then that's leave it a there. that's a much better much yeah, better yeah. like on on all accounts like way to to approach that. Peter uh, Sellers yeah, agrees. I, I don't. I, I don't know how to handle this movie in ranking it because I think it is perfect, but it's also the most spoiled perfect ending. <laughs> and so, do I just discredit the credits? Like, it's just not something I include with the rest of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's the end, and then the credits are rolling, and you just want to know, you know, like what was that location? Oh, it was Biltmore. Okay, like I, I don't think you can. I other other than maybe like the post credits of Split, I don't think you can discount a movie because of like 
something that happens in the credits. I don't know anything about Split except that it was amazing in FML. That, that is all I know about it as well. Don't spoil it. it. It's a mediocre movie that made me angry and want to throw things in the very end. Is that why you didn't play it in okay. FML? No, I didn't see it until after FML. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course this would all come back to FML in the end. It's the thing I know most about movies. You got any any more philosophy to drop on us? <laughs> um. No, other than just the fact that I'm I'm really excited that uh, I was I got the opportunity to watch this movie that I, I it really felt like an oversight to me that I hadn't seen it before. Yeah, I mean my dad's kind of he likes film and we I've seen a lot of good films from um, you know the 70s and 80s and 60s even and 50s, but um, for some reason I had missed this one. I don't know if it was too countercultural for him or um, I, what what the what the deal was there, but I didn't know anything about it. I mean, you mentioned the title and it didn't ring a bell. Um, other than I, the Wilco album, other than the Wilco album, which I listened to on the way over here, actually. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm I'm very very happy that I have discovered this movie now, and then I can share it with other people. Great, I'm I'm glad it I'm glad it was a good match because it it felt right. But you know, you also never know, especially with something like this, that it's not necessarily going to connect with everyone. But it felt like the type of thing that you would you'd be able to sink your teeth into so i'm i'm glad you enjoyed it that being said if there's somebody it didn't connect with i want to hear from you cuz i've only showed this to a few people and it and it's worked for everybody yeah. so if 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 you think it's overblown reach out to us on twitter and and, and tell me i'm wrong i'm going to hate you but i i, I want to meet you first <laughs> and i'm i'm going to say i understand spoilers are done spoilers are done turns out rose but was only a sled so Chris, next time I get hit by a car and get to get in the back of somebody's limo and ask for a drink, what sort of beer should I be requesting? So I I don't know, I wasn't really sure what to pair with this. Honestly, beer feels wrong to me. Um, because it's because of the, the subtlety to it. Uh, so in, instead of trying to go with something that, uh, I, I felt like pairs nicely with notes and everything, I just went with something that's a, a great solid beer that, you know, this actually used to be sort of my favorite go-to. Um, and, and that is hazelnut brown nectar from Rogue Ales. Um, it's a sweet, multi decadent sort of beer and it's, but it's the type of thing that beers like this, a lot of times can be like, you have one and you just feel kind of weighted down. Um, it's, it's, you know, a little bit lighter than that. It's, it's never, it's never too much. It's maybe a little better as like a dessert beer. Um, but it's one that, uh, it lingers with you a bit at the end. And so I guess that's really the, the through line here is, uh, like, like being there as, as a movie that like, I, when I get to the end of being there, other, other than perhaps the credits, um, I'm, I'm never like, it's never like it's a huge emotional drain or drag. Um, but it is like, I've, I've been through a lot. I've experienced a lot. Um, and so that's, I, I don't know. That's really all I've got here. But uh, Hazelnut Brown Nectar, it is a damn fine beer, and I think it would pair extraordinarily well with uh, Hal Ashby's Being There. So check it out, and next time you watch Being There, or when you watch it for the first time, because it is your war crime, 
uh, try it with the hazelnut brown nectar from Rogue Ales. Is, uh, is this a beer you'd like to have with President Jack Warden? You know, I don't know if he's a beer man. He doesn't seem like a beer man. Yeah, it didn't seem like there were many beer people in this in this in the whole movie. Yeah, nobody they talked to the entire time. I would have paired this film with like a spring water, and then you can project whatever flavors and hops on it that you want. <laughs> all right, being there is available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing because you've never heard of it, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around for some really rad recommendations coming up next. Wasting time. Wasting money. You've been acting like. All right, guys, it is time for Really Red Recommendations. Uh, Jake, what do you got for us this time? So, Being There was shot by Caleb Deschanel, who is the father of Zoe Deschanel. So, that got me looking into his filmography to see what else he's done. Uh, he, he shot a, a, a bunch of movies you've probably heard of. The most important one that you must see is Rules Don't Apply. Have you seen Rules Don't Apply? Go and watch Rules Don't Apply. We might be the only three people that have gathered this year who have all seen rules don't apply. That's true because there were never more than one person in a theater watching <laughs> rules. Don't apply no, I at saw, all. I saw it alone. I did Look, as well. I know that typically we don't recommend anything we've recommended before. I know we don't recommend stuff we've reviewed on the show. Yeah. I think, I think you've done both in this case, Jake. I'm- I have, <laughs> but the rules don't apply to me, Chris. I am going to recommend Rules Don't Apply again. The, the best part is it's you can stream it for free on HBO Go, and you probably haven't canceled your Game of Thrones subscription yet, so you still have HBO Go. Go and watch it. Watch this movie. It's it's a delight. I mean, it's a it's it's a bizarro movie, and I still I still stand behind. There's got to be like a three hour cut of this movie somewhere, uh, but I love it. I do love rules. Rules don't apply. I, I hope I, there's a three hour cut of it. I would watch the hell out of that. <laughs> when we're done with War Starts at Midnight, when we just call it quits, can we switch to reviewing Rules Don't Apply every week with a new person? Yes, that's that's all I want. 
I just want to do that. That's what I want life to be. And if you would like to apply to join discussing <laughs> rules don't apply with us, email us at hello or start to midnight.com. <laughs> and watch rules don't apply. Jeez. No, no, no. Don't watch it until we do your episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, no, I'm, I don't support this. If, if it doesn't get more people no, seeing no, no. rules don't they're, apply they're, right away. They're going to they're gonna see it. Okay, whatever. Phil, what do you have to recommend? <laughs> well, I, I have to say it's, it's funny that, uh, that we're having this conversation because – uh, rules don't apply was not a good movie it depends on how you qualify that <laughs> i enjoyed it and it was really interesting it but is it is a, a you know warren Beatty is an iconoclast <laughs> <laughs> can i use that excuse uh, i'll allow it it's it's definitely something there's definitely a voice to it but it's not necessarily the right voice i love unique movies and it is a very unique movie yeah you're, you're talking to two guys who who are basically the john s red fan club so <laughs> no you are you are literally the john s red fan club you you personally ran the website for a number of years still run still run and own that is correct <laughs> Oh, uh, man. And, and one day we will do the same to rules don't apply movie.com. <laughs> <laughs> and Howard Hughes ghost. Thanks you. Um, okay. So I, I'm trying to pick a, uh, a recommendation and I'm, I've got it narrowed down to a couple. Can I mention, can I do three titles? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Is that allowed? Okay. So I, I mentioned earlier, um, uh, Rene Girard is the French uh, philosopher, sociologist, um, literature professor that has been really interesting for me uh, to kind of change my perspective on watching how people interact and on um, on sort of human nature in general. And um, so three titles that I think might be really interesting if somebody wants to learn more about that. Um, the first one would be Reading the Bible with Rene Girard, where it's just the transcript of a conversation that Girard has with the, an interviewer. And um, it's it's a really good introduction to at least how his philosophy applies to biblical interpretation. Hmm. Um, and he has a very, um, very unique perspective on the role and the, um, the meaning behind Christ and sort of all that. And uh, he doesn't talk about walking on water in specific in this book. I think he may in another one, but... Um, it, it, it's an interesting book and it, it really will make you think and, and see things a little bit differently. Um, the other one would be engaging the powers by Walter Wink. I've personally challenged Jake to read this. I don't have no idea whether he actually has or not. It's literally on my bookshelf. It's, it's great. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of things that are literally on my bookshelf that I've never actually cracked open though. Jake name one, something that Dave Eggers wrote guaranteed the circle. <laughs> I bought that. I bought that book and never read it. <laughs> Engaging the powers is a better book than the circle. I, oh, I'm sure it is. That's the complete text of my recommendation. I just <laughs> okay. no. It's it's another. It's it's uh, it's by Walter Wink, who's uh, heavily influenced by Gerard, um, but he he uses it to sort of examine the roles of institutions uh, in our society. And I think um, you know, speaking of sort of the timeliness of being there as a film and in its context. Um, I, this is a very timely book for what we're seeing now in our society. I mm, think okay. um, you're, you're seeing a lot of changes in the way that institutions are um, being viewed by people and upheld and um, engaging the powers has um, really challenged me in the way that I view and uh, expect institutions to act in, in human society. And then the last one, um, I haven't actually read this, but I'm going to recommend it sight unseen. Um, it's the new book by Brian Zond that's called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Brian Zond is an amazing author. I've seen him speak. He's a pastor in uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, which is near Kansas City. 
Um, but he's a really, really engaging writer. Um, also, uh, influenced by Gerard, but, um, makes it very, uh, Christian-y sounding, which is, can be appealing to some people. Uh, it is something that I have to get past, but, uh, you know, if, if that's, if that's your cup of tea, then, um, his, his books always have a, uh, a very unique twist on, uh, on what he's talking about. And I'm very much looking forward to reading this one and, uh, all of those other ones are good too, but this is the, the current one. Can, can I just thank you for being on the show and bringing some class? I, I'm like, go watch that Warren Beatty movie again. And you're like, here's three books. <laughs> this, this is the opposite of what I expected to do on here again. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm the guy who will not change my fantasy movie league team name from my favorite movie, which I watched when I was 15. <laughs> All right, Chris, what do you got? Um, I didn't know what to recommend this time. I don't have anything to tie in with being there. And so I'm just going to go with one that I actually, I don't remember where I, I had a tie in for it. And then I forgot it when we went to make a recommendation. So I'm just going to recommend it here because it's a documentary that I love and it's called the devil and Daniel Johnston. And uh, it's about the sort of uh, cult musician, Daniel Johnston. And uh, it, it's a really, it's a really loving, beautiful portrait of uh his life, his, his relationship with his family, uh, his bizarro story of, uh, you know, dealing with being manic depressive and, um, among, among other things. And then going on tour with, or no, actually it's, he goes, he goes to a butthole surfers concert, drops acid. And then like everything, like if you know about Daniel Johnston, basically everything you know about sort of like his mania, kind of starts after that moment. Like he basically, he drops acid and then things go really south um, in, in his ability to um, kind of find a balance in his, uh, in, in his mental stability. And so the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty tragic uh, movie. It's also, it's a very human movie. Um, it's, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's a damn near perfect documentary in execution on, on basically all fronts. It's, it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully like Daniel Johnson, uh, was, and, and still I think is obsessive with sort of recording things on, on audio cassettes. And so they use a lot of these home recordings, um, and in, in very visually striking ways with, uh, you know, playing sort of playing on a tape player and then, um, having all of his stuff, you know, kind of written out and his sort of, he also, he's sort of an outsider artist as well. I mean, he has like, he draws stuff in markers. It's mostly like superheroes, like Captain America fighting Nazis and stuff, um, just in, you know, like magic markers. Um, and, th- and that's kind of become a, a cult icon sort of thing. You know, he'll have shows where he'll sell, you know, the, just these little, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper with magic marker for, you know, a couple thousand dollars, but they're, they're very unique. They're very like, if you've seen his art and don't even know that it's him, you could still identify. Like if you then look up at stuff, you'd be like, Oh, I've seen that on a shirt Kurt Cobain was wearing and all over the place Hmm. that, that sort of, but, uh, it's, it's a, just, it's one of those movies that, um, since seeing it, I mean, probably like close to, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago now, it, it has never escaped my brain. And it, it kind of, it's one of those that probably always comes up at least once a month for me. I just kind of start dwelling on thinking about it. It's beautifully made, uh, kind of beautifully tragic, but a, a really great, uh, just 
human portrait. Um, that's Devil and Daniel Johnson. It's available to rent basically everywhere. And I, I recommend you do. It's great. I'm shocked that we've never talked about this because I love music documentaries. I'm, I'm shocked we never watched this when yeah. we lived together. We we should have. And have you watched I Am Trying to Break Your Heart yet? Yes. Okay, good. I finally did. And I will stop I will stop mentally harassing you about it every time I think about you. <laughs> no, I, I'm trying to break your heart is great. I I I will say I mean it's a totally different documentary because it's not a this one is not a like sort of watching the madness happen. This is sort of uh, you know, trying to sort through everything. So it's it's a completely different form, but uh, no, those, I, I would say those are equally great for totally different uh, different reasons. Well, I know I'm going to check it out. And I know I'm probably not going to read three books. <laughs> <laughs> At least he's honest. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. And speaking of Twitter, Phil, what uh, amusing Twitter handle are you using these days? Well, actually, uh, my my amusing Twitter handle is at PhilMuses, M-U-S-E-S. Okay. Uh, Because my Twitter is a collection of my musings. Um, I talk a lot about Christianity on there. Um, I also talk about politics, and I also uh, condense the weird things that I think about and that happened in my life into, used to be 140 characters, now it's 280, but uh, yeah, at Phil Muses. So yeah, check him out, and uh, if you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. The spoiler alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash the Taylor Machine. And shout out to Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at DrewHolcomb.com. Join us in another fortnight for a brand new episode of The Carpenter Shop, our ongoing exploration of director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Next time, we're throwing on some magical shades and getting woke as we discuss Carpenter's final film of the 1980s, They Live, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David. Thanks for listening, folks. I like to watch. <laughs> <laughs>